I'm grateful, grateful that Don led us in prayer this morning. Let me just mention one more uh, item for you to remember uh, this week. Um, you may have read an email. I'm not sure that we announced it, but uh, Matt and Noel Willoughby have been selected as adoptive parents for a baby to be born this week uh, in Texas. So we're very excited about that. Um, you can pray, though. Uh, the mother has indicated, the birth mother has indicated her interest in um, uh, releasing her baby for adoption. Uh, she'll have to follow through on that commitment this week. Um, so uh, that would be the item. Our, our, our great desire is that um, this would uh, happen and unfold this week in uh, expectation and our hopes that the Willoughbys would be able to uh, welcome this child into their home. Um, and you can well imagine uh, the um, work that our congregation will be engaged in uh, in encouraging the Willoughbys in particular if uh, things don't unfold this week as they hope and pray. So uh, please be faithful. The baby is due on Tuesday. Uh, 4% of babies are born on their due date. So um, we'll see what happens. And uh, uh, out of state, so... Um, once the baby is born and, and things move forward, uh, the Willoughby's will be gone for a little bit, but uh, they'll return. Uh, in the first issue of a magazine called Men of Integrity, Mark Mooring wrote about this, this time he came home with his wife. They had been out late. Uh, they came home. They sent the babysitter home, and he went into his boys' rooms. He had two young children, two young sons. And he went in there to uh, quietly say goodnight to them. And Peter and Paul were their names. I don't know. Peter and Paul were their names. And uh, uh, he was, they had been in bed an hour. It was an hour past their bedtime. And he was just sneaking in to make sure everything was okay. As soon as he walked, though, in the room, Peter turned around to him and said, Dad, can we have some ice cream? Mark said, it's, it's late. It's past your bedtime. You need to go to sleep. And then Peter said those three words that uh, sink into a parent's conscience like icicles. But you promised. <laughs> Mark remembered at that moment. It had been earlier in the day. It was around lunchtime. Peter had asked, can we have some ice cream? And Mark said, oh, we don't have any right now, but we'll get some today. I promise. Well, they did their afternoon chores, they made dinner, they cleaned up, uh, they picked up their toys, a babysitter came over, Mark and his wife left and went to a Bible study, and uh, now at 10 o'clock, there he was, standing in his boys' rooms with this promise floating in the air. Now, what would you have done in that situation if you had been Mark standing over those beds? Um, you could have easily, very easily thought of all the rational reasons why delaying this promise would be a good idea. Uh, legitimate reasons. Um, it's late. It's past the boy's bedtime. Um, it's, it's not like Mark was wasting time. He was at a Bible study. All right? And really, ice cream is not that good for you. I mean, it's got a lot of fat, a lot of sugar. And we're, we're only human. Forgetting happens sometimes, Right? You could think for a minute about what you would do and maybe what you should do in that situation. Well, huh. the magazine is called Men of Integrity. So you can guess what Mark did. Uh, he left his house. Uh, he ran to the convenience store. He brought the ice cream home, and he and his two young sons at 10.30 at night sat around their kitchen table and ate their chocolate vanilla swirl because he promised. 
This is a fine story about a father keeping his promises. Um, and I confess, my fear with, about sharing it with you is uh, I don't want to feed your cynicism by telling you that story. Here, here's, here's what I mean. This is the church. This is a sermon. And sometimes the way we, we talk about life, we talk about life as if it works out. Everything works out always, easily. Now, we have reasons to believe that, that everything works out. The scripture uh, encourages us to be hope-filled people. God is at work in every situation for his glory and our good. But sometimes our focus on God's goodness, his ability to weave together things like that, sometimes means we don't think carefully enough about what happens when, in the meantime, things are very bleak. And we don't keep our promises. People don't keep the promises that they, they make to you. The truth of the matter is that we need help. We need a lot of help and we need encouragement to say we're to do what we say we are going to do. And usually we need help in areas that far surpass ice cream in their importance. I want to show you one of the ways that God teaches us to keep uh, our promises and I want to do that by asking you to turn one more time to the book of Leviticus. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn me to Leviticus chapter 27. We're going to be there in just a few minutes. Leviticus, of course, is right at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, then Leviticus. And chapter 27 is the last chapter in this book. Uh, we started going through the book of Leviticus about a year ago, and this has been one of the most challenging books in the Bible for us to study together. Recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, people have confessed to me that they find Leviticus to be confusing. Someone said, Leviticus is a little dull sometimes. Um, I think those observations accurately reflect how unfamiliar this world is. God is the same, but the people, the customs, the culture, the practices, they're so foreign to us that this book can be difficult to wade through. This is my last chance to tell you this from Leviticus, so I'm going to remember the theme of this book, right? God is holy and we are not. Over and over again, the, the text says, I am holy. I am the Lord your God, and I am holy. And the book tells us over and over again, or shows us, we are not. It shows us that graphically, how unholy we are. God's holy, that is, he is set apart from us in beauty and goodness and power and justice and, and wisdom the Bible describes him in a way that's to elicit us from our awe and our wonder at his, his greatness. I was thinking this morning, as Don prayed, uh, based on what Jesus said in, in John about the love of God, and we sang the song a few minutes ago, his mercies will be new. For 10,000 years, we will be thinking about God's mercy and his love. If you read the Bible carefully, clearly, and understand what it says about God, it is awesome to see. We don't share in God's goodness, in his wisdom, or his sense of justice. And Leviticus actually helps us understand how dangerous it is for holy people to be in the presence of, uh, for unholy people to be in the presence of holiness. Uh, recently, my children discovered a television series on Netflix that I used to watch a long time ago. It was called Spider Man and His Amazing Friends. 
Now, uh, Spider-Man, you know him. He's the main character in this, this series. Um, he has two friends in this series, two superheroes, Firestar and Iceman. And Firestar's superpower is that, since Steve Wilson is not here, I'm saying this in honor of him. So, um, Firestar, his, her super ability is to create and generate heat. She can shoot flames. She can generate enough heat so that she can fly. Iceman, on the other hand, um, creates ice out of the vapor in the air. He can make um, snow and ice and, and all kinds of, of things. And the three fight crime together. Inevitably, about every two or three episodes, uh, Firestar and Iceman are captured by some nefarious villain who just happens to have special rooms prepared just for them. You see, if you put Firestar in a freezer, she's powerless. And if you put Iceman in, under a heat lamp, He's, he withers away and, and wilts. This is not high art, okay? This, I just I know this. Uh, these two friends, one really hot, one really cold, could not touch each other. They, they couldn't be close to one another when they were in superhero mode because those things don't mix. The holy and the unholy cannot mix. Now, Firestar and Iceman were equal in power. They neutralized one another. Holy God is not equal in power to unholy people. It's dangerous. We risk death by being in the presence of holy God. But the book of Leviticus tells us about this system that God designed so that he could move in with the Israelites and be close to them. Uh, uh, he, he does it, Deuteronomy tells us, because he loves them. I have set my love upon you, and I want to be with you, present with you, for your blessing. And in order to protect these unholy people from God's holy presence, he sets up this system of sacrifices and, and the temple or tabernacle. There's clean and unclean rules. And, and in Leviticus, even, there's, there's uh, things that apply just to them because God lives there. And then there's some universal moral principles that are, that are in here, too. Now, we don't practice these sacrifices and we don't have a tabernacle or a temple like this because the Lord Jesus has come and he has made us holy by his death and resurrection. But this is how this worked here and now. In this time, these sacrifices and those bloody sacrifices, huh, they were lessons in and of themselves, aren't they? To teach us how seriously God takes sin. How holy is he really? You read Leviticus and you walk into it and you smell the blood, the blood everywhere. This is how seriously God takes sin. This is how holy he is and how unholy we are. Now, like most covenants, Leviticus is a covenant describing this relationship. It ends with blessings and curses. We, we talked about this all the way through the book. God lays claim to their loyalty. He says, I am the Lord. And if they keep covenant with him, they experience great blessing and great joy. Their crops grow, their families reproduce, there's no uh, danger from armies. It's just blessed peace in Israel. Uh, if they do not, though, they will experience these curses of, of judgment. This is how most covenants work, and this is how ancient covenants end with these blessings and curses. But today, you have before you here Leviticus 27, the, the epilogue here. One more chapter. Um, it's a chapter about vows. It's a chapter about promises. And, and scholars puzzle, why is this chapter here? Um, 
Why is this strange set of case laws added on? Why is this tacked on to the end? That what appears to be this very anticlimactic legal passage. It's as if uh, uh, the, the story, the author of Leviticus, if he was telling the story, and, and uh, Cinderella and the prince, they go and they get married, and they, they walk out of the, the, the chapel, and everybody's singing and cheering, and uh, they go off on their honeymoon. It's as if the next chapter, uh, the next little scene, would be about them paying taxes or something. It's just not the ending here that the story is meant to have. Why this specific these specific rules here? Well, um, there's uh, some theories as to why Leviticus 27 is at the end of the book, why it finishes here. Some people just say it's history. This is the order in which God revealed this command, these commands. So he, he made the decision. This is just Moses accurately reporting. That, that's probably how it happened. I think it's maybe more purposeful than that, though. Some people point out that in Jewish texts like this one, often the most important scenes are actually in the middle. Um, that technical literary term that sometimes they were written, the stories were written in, in chiasmus, is a chiasmus, and, and the most important part is in the center. So maybe that's, that's what's going on here. That, that's a possibility, I suppose. I think actually the answer to this, the reason the chapter is here, after this climax of blessings and cursings, is more contextual. This is about the danger, or rather the cost, of making vows and the danger of breaking them. When do people make vows in the Bible? We'll talk about this more in a minute. But they make vows when they are in desperate, a desperate condition. When they're in danger, when they feel threatened, when they're afraid, they make vows. And maybe Moses is concerned, God wants to tell the people, if you are experiencing the curses in chapter 26, and life is hard, and you're afraid, be very careful about making promises to God at that moment. Maybe that he's trying to warn them about trying to get out of the curses by making vows. I think that's possible. Don't, don't make them rashly. Or, I think even looking broader at the context of Leviticus, I think this chapter is here to remind the people what it means to walk with God. Following him can be costly. Over and over in this book here, there's these covenants and these responsibilities and these blessings, and the people are to read them seriously and to recognize that following them, that answering God's call, when he lays claim to them as his people, there are, there are going to be, uh, there's a price to, to pay for that. I think that, that accords somewhat with, with the gospel that we believe. We believe that the gospel is a message about a gift from God that is completely free and, and, uh, completely free and at the same time totally destructive. We announce to people, we say to people what God has done, what God has done through Jesus Christ. And it's a free offer that God makes of life and forgiveness but at the same time recognize it dismantles your life. The reason that the gospel, of course, dismantles your life is because it's about your sin. This natural condition before God of, of uh, this pervasive sense of rebellion against him, you have built your life around this disorientation from God and it affects everything. What you love, what you value, what you trust, what you fear, um, where you go, what you do. 
I had a conversation on Thursday that reminded me of a, of a, a few articles that were published in New York City a few years ago. Um, they were grumbling articles in, an, in an, one of the newspapers. And there was a, a collection of columnists who were complaining in the newspaper about the condition of Times Square in New York City. Now, I'm not sure if you've visited Times Square recently. Um, you might not know what it has become, but in the words of the columnist, Times Square has become Disney-fied. Um, Walt Disney, the M&M store, the toy store have taken over, and Times Square is family-friendly, or in the uh, cynical words of these columnists, it's uh, sweet and um, sentimental. It's a lot different than the adult theaters and bars that used to be there. Um, Now, these columnists, they didn't necessarily like the adult theaters and the bars that used to be there, but they missed the reality, the the grittiness, the real sense of humanity that was in Times Square because they say the Disney-fied life is not real life. Now, I think what these columnists did is that they were uh, objecting to the new form of idolatry, life built without God, that had replaced the old form of idolatry, life without God. See, before, there were adult theaters and bars, and the idol was pleasure and freedom from restraint and anonymity, and I'm going to go have a good time, and no one's going to stop me, and... Uh, the new idolatry, the Disney-fied idolatry, is the happiness that comes from being mildly entertained and safe and comfortable and, and cute and sentimental. Um, you struggle at some points in your life with, with building your life around one of these idolatrous systems. M- maybe not one of these two, but one of them. So, You might pick one. So you get drunk and have sex on the weekends, one form of idolatry, or you go buy matching polos at Land's End so you and your family can get your beach picture at the summer so you can send it out at Christmas and tell all your family and friends about your son's soccer championships and your daughter's violin recitals. The Disney-fied life. When the gospel moves in, it dismantles the centers that you build. God becomes the center. Circumstances may, may remain the same. You, you, you still, uh, God is certainly not opposed to sexual pleasure. He's not opposed to fine food and drink. And he's not opposed to beach vacations or even lands and polos. Um, or Christmas letters. Uh, but, but the center of that life that you build is, is different. God becomes the center. So he dismantles and rearranges things. The gospel is destructive. We respond to it by faith, this message, trust. There's no merit, there's no ritual, there's no good deeds that are necessary. Just trust. But because the gospel is aimed at your sin and its consequences, turning toward him in faith begins this dismantling process. Every follower of Jesus Christ encounters this at some point in their life. In fact, one of the signs that you're growing as a follower of Jesus Christ is that God is doing dismantling work in you. He's rearranging the things that you trust in. He's shaping the things that you love. He's reformatting the things that entertain you and that that bring you pleasure. And I think uh, part of this destruction work here involves 
this commitment to keeping your word, to fulfilling your, your promises. And that's this warning that's in Leviticus chapter 27. Now, here's the central message of, of this chapter. Here's, I want to summarize Leviticus 27 in one sentence. Here it is. It costs more to break your word than to keep it. It costs more to break your word than to keep it. You are tempted to break your word to not keep your promises because it's too hard. But the real challenge is the real danger and the real cost comes when you break your word. I want to prove that to you. I think that this is what this chapter teaches. Before we do that, I just have two more orienting things to say. Uh, I want to make a distinction between two types of promises that the Bible makes. The two types of promises, not the Bible makes, but are in the Bible. Two types of promises, um, oaths and vows. Now, an oath is a promise that you make to another person and you call God as witness and guarantor of the promise. I'm telling you the truth. Um, I swear to you that I am telling you the truth as God is my witness. And if I'm not telling you the truth, uh, may God punish me. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't know if they say this anymore in court systems. So help me God. I'm calling God as my witness in what are the testimony I'm going to give. And I'm calling God as, as guarantor of my oath. There's oaths in the Bible. Uh, God makes oaths. Now, a vow is not a promise you make to another person, another human being. A vow is a promise that you make to God. Uh, both are in the Bible. Sometimes oaths and vows get confused. When you witness a marriage ceremony, you are actually witnessing both a vow and an oath. We call them marriage vows. The part that we call marriage vows are actually marriage oaths, aren't they? I take you to be my wedded wife, my wedded husband. You're making a, a promise to someone else, an oath. I swear that in sickness and in health, in uh, riches, in poverty, I'm going to be your spouse. God is witness of my oath. But it's also a vow, isn't it? Sometimes in, in wedding ceremonies, the pastor will ask, will you take this person to be your And you say, I will. You're making a promise. Who are you making a promise to? God himself. So in wedding ceremonies, both oaths and vows um, uh, appear. Actually, sometimes the Bible, um, we get confused a little bit in the Bible as we read which is, which is going on. Now, vows, as I said, are often made in times of distress. They express a deep, deep longing. They, they come from this request for God to act. There, there's a promise to, attached to it. God, if you will do this, then I will do that. That's what a vow is. It's got those two things. If you, then I. There's the promise nature of it. Think about Hannah in 1 Samuel. Hannah was desperate to have a child in 1 Samuel, wasn't she? So she said to God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you and he will serve at the tabernacle. We'll talk about that sort of vow in a minute. This is our desperate plea. I desperately want this. Sometimes vows, vows can sometimes seem manipulative a little bit. 
In the book of Genesis, God appears to Jacob and he says to Jacob, I'll be with you. I'll bring you back. You're, you're running from your family. I will bring you back in peace and happiness and you'll be fine. I'll take care of you. I will bless you. And Jacob then makes this vow. He says, if God brings me back here safely, then I will worship him. Now, this chapter is aimed at scoundrels like Jacob. Um, keep those vows. And the way that Leviticus 27 does this is it sets a financial cost for breaking your word. There is a moral cost for breaking your word. Leviticus 27 monetizes that by adding a, a cash value to breaking your word because breaking your word costs more than keeping it. Now, let me show you that in the text here. Enough introduction. Uh, there are four categories of vows that people make in this text. The first category is in verses 1 through 8, and it's about making human vows. Human vows. This is, uh, or vowing humans. This is like the vow that Hannah made in 1 Samuel. If you were in dire straits, you could promise God, or you, you could promise um, God that you, or someone under your care over whom you had authority, would become a temple slave. That's what happened to Samuel. Hannah, if you give me a, go- a son, I will bring him to the ta- tabernacle. And what did she She fulfilled her word. She brought Samuel to uh, Eli, the high priest, and he became a temple slave. Um, maybe you could uh, serve as a gopher or a, a, a sweeper or a secretary. You would, you would give your life to serving in the tabernacle. Often, though, what would happen is that that people wouldn't have, there wouldn't be enough work in the tabernacle. So what you would do is instead of bringing yourself and and actually being at the tabernacle, you would, would, would pay a price. I made a vow to be a temple slave, but instead I'm going to offer a, a price in my place. This part doesn't exactly show us so much that, that vows, breaking them is costly. It, this actually says that making vows is costly. Well, look at the text here. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value... Set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. For a female, set her value at 30 shekels. For a person between the ages of 5 and 20, set the value of a male at 20 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels. Is there anybody who wants to know why men and women are valued differently here? Well, we'll get to that. Verse 6. For a person between one month and five years, set the value of a male at five shekels of silver and that of a female at three shekels of silver. For a person 60 years old or more, set the value of a male at 15 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels. If anyone making the vow is too poor to pay the specified amount, the person being dedicated is to be presented to the priest who will set the value according to what the one making the vow can afford. Making vows is costly. Now, what happens here in this passage is there's four age categories and uh, different prices for males and females in those categories. This is not a statement that the Bible is making about the value of men and women. God does not value 
women less than he values men. And he doesn't value middle-aged people more than he values seniors or babies. That's not what this passage is saying. Remember, this is about slavery. And what's here in the Bible, these are actual slave prices. This is what a man between the ages of 20 and 60 would bring on the market. And this is what a woman between the ages of 20 and 60 would bring in the market. And the reason the prices are different is because of their capacity for physical labor. In general, most men can work longer and harder than most women. In general. So the prices were different. If you vowed yourself as a slave to God, if God you do this, then I will become your slave. Um, and, and there was no work to be done, no positions to be fulfilled. You had to pay the redemption price based on your age and whether or not you were male or female, or the age of the person that you had vowed. This is a significant price. Making vows to God is costly. Um, the average, let's see, a male, the most expensive. Uh, Price here is 50 shekels. The average Israelite laborer made one shekel a month. So this price is uh, uh, about five years of labor. How long would it take you to save and pay five years of your salary? This is a long time. It's costly to make vows. Now, the price for breaking them, I think, is more apparent in the second section, which is about animals. Some people, rather than than vowing people, would make vows about animals. They would say, God, if you do this, then I will give you this animal in my herd. Now, verse 9 here, look. If what they vowed is an animal that is acceptable acceptable as an offering to the Lord, uh, that would be something you could sacrifice, a sheep, um, a goat, uh, a ram, an ox, Um, such an animal given to the Lord becomes holy. They must not exchange it or substitute a good one for a bad one or a bad one for a good one. If they should substitute one animal for another, both it and the substitute become holy. You can imagine here, this is the price. So you say to God, I'm in dire straits, I'm in trouble. God, if you rescue me, I will give you my best ram named Gary. Okay, I will give you Gary, God, if you rescue me. So scene goes on. God rescues him, and uh, the, the, the man brings to the temple um, Larry the sheep, not Gary the sheep. And the priest says, I heard about this vow that you made. Yeah. You vowed that you were going to bring Gary, and now you've brought Larry. Oh. Yeah. Are you trying to cheat God? Are you trying to go back on your word? It doesn't even matter if Larry's a better, a better sheep than Gary is. You promised Gary. Do you know what now? Because you are trying this, for good or for ill, bring me both of them. Larry and Gary both belong to God. You try to break your word, it costs. Costs. Now... Something similar goes in verse 11. If what they vowed is a ceremonially unclean animal, something you couldn't offer as a sacrifice, a camel, for example, one that is not acceptable as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented to the priest who will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value the priest then sets, that is what it will be. Um, 
And what happened to the camel? Well, the priest could keep the camel. Maybe he needed it to move. Or the, the temple, they decided they needed the camel for some reason. They could keep the camel, or they could mandate that you would pay a price for the camel. But if you want the camel back, or uh, if, if you want to keep the camel, if you want it to be your possession, if you want to go back in your vow, then if the owner wishes to redeem the animal, a fifth must be added to its value. It, it costs to undo your vows. 20%. Um, this is, this 20% is the same payment that you would have to make for a guilt offering. Earlier, m- months ago, we talked about guilt offerings. When you desecrate something um, that's supposed to be holy, you have to pay for it and then pay a, a fee on top of it. What's happening here is that you're taking the item that you vowed and you're, you're taking it out of the realm of the holy back into your own family realm and there's a penalty to be paid, 20%. Keeping your word costs less than breaking it. It is costly to break your word. Now, verse 14 is about houses. Houses. If anyone dedicates their house, this would be a house in Jerusalem, uh, in a city, not your house out in the country, on your land. If anyone dedicates their house as something holy to the Lord, the priest will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value the priest then sets, so it will remain. If the one who dedicates their house wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and the house will again become theirs. So here's, again, how this would work. God, I want you to do this for me, and if you do, I will give you my house. And you come to the priest and you say, I made a vow, and I have vowed to the Lord that if he delivered me, I would give my house. Here's my house. And the priest would take the house and say, great, that's Wonderful, thank you. And they would either use it for visiting priests, maybe as a guest house, or they'd sell it and the money would go to the tabernacle or the temple. But if you came to the priest and you said, you know, I made a vow to God that he could have my house, but I love this house. Have you seen the town, the bathroom? It's beautiful. I don't think that I... I want to keep my house. Well... Uh, you go with the priest's estimate of its value, and if you want it back, if you want to undo your vow, 20% more. Now, something happens similar here in verses 16 to 24. We're not going to read all of these, but this is, this is about vowing land, a, a, a vow of your land. And there's some peculiarities in here because of the value of land and how land worked. Remember, land was God's special gift to the people, so had, there were special rules about making vows concerning the land. And, and in particular, because of the year of Jubilee, they had to uh, work around certain things. But what's inherent in this passage, we, we, won't, we won't look at the particularities of it. If you try to get out of a vow that you made of your land, you lose control of it. There's no reward for this. You, you cannot sneak your way around a vow that you make to God. It's costly. Now, uh, verses 26 and, and following here, the end of this passage, are again about vows, but they're about things that cannot be vowed. Um, you can't make a vow that involves the firstborn of an animal. That's in verses 26 through 28, because God already owns the firstborn. Um, Verse 29 is about a special type of vow. Let's look at what it says here. No person, verse 29, dedicated to, uh, devoted to destruction may be ransomed. They are to be put to death. 
It's a very specific circumstance that actually is one of the most difficult apologetic issues in the Old Testament. We're not going to deal with that right now. But this is um, a vow concerning warfare. When God commanded the, Can- uh, the Israelites to go into Canaan, he said to them, destroy everything and everybody. It is devoted to destruction. Um, and God says, don't renege on that sort of command. Don't ignore that. Remember, it happened to Saul. That's why Saul lost his kingdom, because he didn't kill all of the animals that he was supposed to. Uh, Verses 30 to 33 are about the tithe and how important it must be paid. And and, um, you you, you have to redeem your, your tithes. Breaking your word costs more than keeping it. Now, it's interesting as you move through the Bible that uh, oaths and vows seem to fade in existence. How, I did, Paul didn't talk about oaths and vows very much at all, if any places in his, his letters. I think maybe it's, it's because of what Jesus says in Matthew 5.33. I listed it for you on the sheet there. Look what Jesus said. Why do oaths and vows seem to have faded? Um, Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to do is say, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now this passage does not forbid making oaths. What Jesus is talking about is he's making, he's forbidding them from making oaths that they're going to use verbal jujitsu to break. See, these uh, Pharisees, they had, they had rules about vows. If you made a vow, by, uh, an oath, if you swore an oath by the God who is in the temple, you had to keep that one. But if you swore an oath by the gold that was in the temple, you didn't have to keep that one. Ha, ha, ha. Jesus is saying, don't use verbal jujitsu. Don't, don't make oaths. That you're, don't make a promise and cross your fingers and put it behind your back to, get, to keep you from having to, to make a promise, to keep your promise. You remember doing that, right? My fingers are crossed. I don't have to keep the promise. This is what Jesus is warning against here. Lewis Smedes, I, I want to read a paragraph from Lewis Smedes. He writes about promises. He, Leviticus 27 is in economic terms. It costs you 20% more if you break your vows. Lewis Smedes here talks about some of the moral entailments of promises. Listen to what he said. Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship you will not desert, if you have people you will not forsake, if you have causes you will not abandon, then you are like God. What an incredible thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. 
When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into what circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. When a person makes a promise, she stakes a claim on her personal freedom and power. When you break your promises, you do just the opposite of that. This is the moral cost to be paid. When you break your promises, you are magnifying uncertainty in people's lives. When you break your promises, you demand your freedom. I will do what I want to do when I want. I am not going to tie myself to anybody or any cause or anything. You demand your freedom. When you break your promises, you act unlike God, who always keeps his word. I think Leviticus 27 raises two challenges for us in particular that I just want to mention briefly as as we finish here. We struggle, first of all, with making promises we cannot keep. We make promises we cannot keep. Why do you make promises that you can't keep, that you know that you can't keep? Um, You promise to attend certain events, fulfill certain responsibilities, carry burdens. Um, Sometimes we do it in our minds knowing we're going to, I'm not going to do this. uh, A good example. We'll get together sometime real soon. I'll call you. We'll stay in touch. I'll pray for you. Oh, let's not bring that up. Uh, You know, I think we make those promises in part because uh, we're afraid of other people. Paul was accused of this by the the Corinthians. See, they said to him, you just tell us what you think we want to hear. We make promises because we don't want to disappoint people or we we want to protect their feelings or sometimes it just seems like the gracious, the socially gracious thing to do. This attitude that says, in this moment, I'm more concerned about your feelings than I am about what actually I'll be able to do, what actually is is the truth. Now, I don't don't think that that means that we need to say to people... um, We'll never, I'll never see you again. <laughs> We're not going to keep in touch. Let's just be honest. It's over. See you later. Right? I mean, I don't think that we should make it a practice of saying that to people. But let's not, let's not contribute to this atmosphere of false sociality. Be careful about making promises that you cannot keep. Our greater struggle, though, actually, I think, is the second challenge, is that we break promises that we make. We break promises we make. I know sometimes you're forgetful. You, you break promises because of that, right? You forget to get the milk on the way home from the store, on the way home from your errands. You forget to turn the dishwasher on. Um, uh, you forget to order the new supplies at work. I mean, it happens. We're human beings, right? Sometimes we break promises because we're, we're lazy. Sometimes keeping promises, it just seems too hard to keep the promises. You'll face these temptations. See, keeping your promises at some point in time will be embarrassing. It'll be uncomfortable. It'll be inconvenient to keep promises. Uh, A couple of years ago, some philosophers, Christian philosophers, wrote a little volume called The Chorus of Witnesses. Listen to how they describe a family. Actually, it works for a church too, but uh, this is what they say. What is a family but a community of promises made and promises kept no matter what? 
A family is not just two or more people related by blood who happen to live under one roof. A family is not a management device by which two adults shuffle children around to the various experts who do the real rearing. A family is a community of people who dare to make a promise and care enough to keep it no matter what. A family is held together by promises. Where promises fail, families fail. The rebirth of the family can begin only in the rebirth of promise-keeping. What happened if you were to substitute the word church in there? A church is a community of people who dare to make a promise and care enough to keep it no matter what. I want to belong to that type of church. We find in the Bible here, even in the New Testament where oaths and, and, and uh, vows seem to fade, we find in here the power to keep our promises. What changes us, I think, from being oath breakers, vow breakers, promise breakers, to being promise keepers is the economics of the gospel. So the New Testament changes the equation. Remember what the equation of the vow was. An equa- the equation of a vow was you say to God, If you do this, then I will do this. It's the basic mathematics of a a vow. It it can be done by faith. It can be done out of uh, desperation. It's not just a crass exchange. If you do this, then I will do this. Here's how the New Testament uh, changes the economics of this. The New Testament teaches us to say to God, you have already given me your son. You have already given me your son. What's the second part of that? What do you say then? What's left to get? There's no more room for bargaining, is there, in this scenario? The economics of a vow is completely destroyed by the gospel. You have given me your son. He's the one who came to be our sin bearer when he died on the cross. He's he's the one who rose again. It's by faith in him that the dismantling work of the gospel takes place. The gift of God's salvation is is found in him. It used to be, this this is the economics, if you give me this, God, I will give you this. And now the New Testament comes along and it says to us, God has given us his son. What do you say after that? Everything else I want is small by comparison. What's the logical response? What's the new economics involved in the gospel? Paul actually speaks for uh, us in a passage that echoes so many of the things that Leviticus teaches. Brothers and sisters, he says, in view of God's mercy, I plead with you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's the way we worship. This is where the sacrifices of Leviticus, this system of worship, finds the truest meaning in the life that you lead as we walk in the holiness to which God calls us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we are thankful that you are a God who keeps your promises. You keep promises to us in ways that are beyond our ability to um, imagine or ask for. We, we did not ask for you to send us a redeemer like the Lord Jesus. 
but you, out of your infinite goodness and great mercy and perfect sense of justice, you uh, came to us and you rescued us on the cross. And, and, and by doing so, we're in awe. You remove all of the if and thens from our vocabulary. Since you have already given us your son, we pray that you would enable us to, to obey what Paul has called us to, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Teach us that your generosity, um, as expressed through the Lord Jesus, extends far beyond what we can conceive. And knowing that, help us to, to trust you more. We recognize, Father, that you are holy and we are not. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who makes us able to stand in your presence. It's in his name that we pray these things.